you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, crew? Welcome back. So last week I announced Chat with Traders merch is now available on the website. And of course, it is still available. You can check it out at chatwithtraders.com slash shop. But this week I have another announcement. Uh, this announcement is mostly relevant to my Australian listeners and more specifically, folks who are in Sydney because... On Tuesday, the 29th of August, I'll be doing a live podcast in Sydney at one of the WeWork locations. It's a really cool venue. Uh, this event will also double as a bit of a meetup, hangout type of thing uh, because I'll be putting on bears and pizza beforehand too. Now, the two traders who I'll be interviewing are Bryce Edwards and also Nick Fabrio. Uh, Nick, I apologize if I pronounce that incorrectly. <laughs> um, these guys are both Australian equity traders and both very good at what they do. I can promise you that. Uh, for more info and to get a ticket, please visit chatwithtraders.com slash Sydney. Tickets are dirt cheap. They're just $15. So again, chatwithtraders.com slash Sydney. Now, on the podcast this week, I've got a very interesting character for you. The gentleman's name is Dr. William Zimba. William is an academic, a practitioner, gambler, trader, and an author. He's worked with and consulted to many well-respected names in the field, such as Edward Thorpe, Blair Hull, and the very successful horse better, Bill Benter. In the beginning, horse betting was actually William's field of expertise. He even published a book titled Beat the Racetrack. And in many ways, for William, horse betting worked as a gateway to trading financial markets, which he's been doing since around 1983. In 2015, William won the Futures Division of Trading Competition Battle of the Quants. And now in current times, William manages a fund, Alpha Z Advisors, which has outperformed the S&P 500 by a long shot. The fund started in July 2013, and as of May 2017, it's returned 527%. 
Much of Williams' trading revolves around calendar anomalies, arbitrage strategies, and behavioral biases. We spend a good amount of time discussing these few things. Plus, William shares one anomaly he's been trading himself for many years. In the later part of this episode, we also talk about position sizing and the Cali Criterion. And finally, we close things out with some discussion about horse racing. All right, so let's cut to the interview now. Uh, just a final reminder, if you want to come along to the live podcast in Sydney, chatwithtraders.com slash Sydney. Go there, grab yourself a ticket. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Please enjoy this episode. Racing I've done for years and years, which is sort of how I learned the stuff I do in the stock market, basically. I think of it as, as like racing. The, the only thing is... The only difference, Aaron, is that in, in the stock market, futures market, you can stop the race when your horse is ahead. <laughs> That's one of the differences. And the race ends. That's the other thing. In the financial markets, the race never ends. It's always going. So those are a couple of the differences. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something I'd really like to get into with you, actually. But, I mean, just for starters, William, I know that you wear a lot of hats, or you certainly have done over your career. You know, you've been an academic, like we were just talking about sports. I think of myself as an academic, and I do the trading uh, as part of it. I learned from the books, uh, and I paste them together. And when I talk to people, and maybe your, your audience, I have sort of seven of them that each has certain ideas, and I sort of combine the ideas, and then I do the trading discretionary. You have to make fast decisions, and it's a judgment call as to what to do. So, uh, so that's there, and you have to be basically uh, very careful and watch your risk control and not overbet. Overbetting is very tricky because you can be in a situation where you're not overbet, and all of a sudden the market changes a little bit, and then now all of a sudden you are overbet. Uh, so you have to adjust it. So, and, it, and it's constant work. So you have to really pay attention. If you try to just do it fully computerized, there are people who do that successfully. But for me, I have to do it, you know, with, with you know, a lot of work. It's, it's like a job. You, you, uh, you have to work at it. So how come that's the case? I mean, how come your trading isn't fully computerized? Because you have to make fast decisions on things. Like, for example, in the Trump election, the market assumed that, that if Trump got elected, it's going to fall. And in fact, when he started winning, the market started out ahead. Then as he started winning, the market fell dramatically, 800 points on the Dow Jones. But... He, there are two Trumps. There's the guy who fires people, who tells the uh, French uh, leader that his wife has a beautiful body, the guy who uh, insults people, the guy who cheats people, doesn't pay his bills. There's that guy. Then there's a guy who calmly reads a speech written by somebody else and does it carefully. That guy... That Trump is very bullish. So the minute that he, in fact, started the election speech after he had won, 
the first thing that came out of his mouth was not that Hillary is going to be locked up in jail and all this business. She said, Hillary's a great person. I really respect her. I knew that Margaret had to fly. So, so you, know, you go along. So you have, you have like five seconds or 10 seconds to decide what to do. So I don't know if your computer could really do that. You may be able to program it to, to do this thing, but I kind of doubt it. And I had to do the same thing in the French election. I had to do the same thing in the Brexit. And I feel fortunate that I won in all, all of them. Uh, and, and even in February 12, when the first, the big decline of January, February of 2012 occurred, on the 12th, the VIX, volatility index, finally turned. So it turned lower. And then the S&P rallied. And one went monotone down, the VIX, and one went monotonically up, the S&P. So that was a good one. So you have to sort of, for me at least, have to make these, these fast decisions. So Ken Griffiths, the famous uh, Chicago trader, who's, he's good enough to buy $80 million Picassos, so, so uh, things of that sort. Uh, his way of thinking is very similar to the way I think, which is you have to understand the theory, you read the stuff, and then in the end, it's a judgment call as to what to do in the size of the thing. And so you have to sort of know in advance how many uh, positions to have and what kind, et cetera. Now, of course, uh, Thorpe and I and, and Len McLean did this book on the Kelly Criteria. I've been doing papers on Kelly Criteria for, for 30, 40 years. They go back to my uh, 1975 book, uh, Stochastic Optimization Models in Finance. Uh, and... And so they go back. So it's a long time. So you do that. But what I do is, after a while, you sort of get a feel for the size of the bets that you can make that that are reasonable. So so I, I do that. Of course, you can do calculations, and you can do them in advance, thinking about what's going to happen. So you you just try to prepare yourself. But the, but the thing is, you have to actually be ready. So when the event occurs, because it can go either way. In the French election. What was interesting was there were 10 candidates. Five were for staying in and five for what's called Frexit, which is French exiting. Now, of the five, there's only one that's the top candidate. That's Marie Le Pen, who's a master debater. And so, so it was a threat. And, of course, if she had won, that would have been very, very bad for the U.S. markets as well as the Europeans. But the minute that Macron won, and she won, because it was two that did the runoff, but the third place person went with Macron, that was my signal that, well, Le Pen's not going to win, therefore it's not going to crash, so the other option is it's going to rally. So I did that. In fact, that's the greatest day of trading I ever had in my life. <laughs> Uh, we made 5% in the fund that night. That is a good day. So these couple examples you gave, these were mostly around presidential elections. I mean, is that where the bulk of your trading is done? I mean, what about in between those? No, no, no. I think that's one thing. I think what it is, is for, for nine years, 
I was, well, first of all, I went to Japan in 19, uh, at the time when they were essentially accumulating most of the world's money. Uh, so that was 87, 88, 89. In 87, we had a giant stock market crash in the United States. So when I got an invitation to interview to be the first Yamishi professor, Yamishi was the fourth biggest brokerage firm in Japan, sixth biggest in, in the world. Now, in Japan, stockbrokers are in the status of the society uh, rated lower than garbage collectors. Kabuki dancers, potters, these are the people that are respected by people. So the economics departments have brilliant people trained at the top U.S. universities as well as, as Cambridge and Oxford, et cetera, as well as the University of Tokyo. So in economics, it's very good. In math, it's very good. But there's nothing really in the business school in finance. So, so the, the brokerage firms wanted to kind of change this. So they gave a five-year professorship uh, to the University of Scuba, National University, to kind of develop that. And, and I interviewed to be the first one. And it was quite good because uh, my wife got a very nice job. She's quite smart. And I was delighted that she got a job. And it's the same pay, men or women. It's based on, on age, basically, is, is the pay. Uh, and then my daughter was uh, nine years old and went to public school, red hair and all. And, uh, and I had two things. I had teaching at the, the, uh, the university, which was about 60 kilometers north of, uh, of Tokyo. And I had nice classes and people from the brokerage firm would come up as well as people from the university. And then I had two projects. I had stock market anomalies. And I was one of the first to actually study that stuff in Japan. Uh, and, and then the other was crashes. And so I came up with a model based on the 87 crash for the crash part. And it worked very nice. And what we did is we made the model, which is basically stocks and bonds fighting for the money. So when, when bond prices are such that the interest rates are high, bonds get more of the money. And, and in the other case, when it's low, then the stocks get more of the money. So based on that, they had a crash measure, which explains the crash of 87. It also was, in fact, the, the, the basis of finding the, the model. So I had to find a, a, a place to test it out of sample. So I tested it out of sample with the past in, in Japan, because we're now in Japan. So I did 1948 to 88, 40 years of data, and it turned out the way the model works is you get a signal, and then usually the market continues to go a bit higher, and then it falls, and it falls 10% below the starting price. So that's so forth. So anyway, so... In my recent book, uh, which is in printing now on stock market crashes, we test that model in, in against uh, Bob Schiller's high PE 
and and also by itself. So we, we discussed with, with, with that and uh, so forth. So so anyway, what happened was uh, so we tested it out of sample in Japan, and there were 12 times that the model went in the danger zone, and every time it fell, so no misses. And then at the end of 89, when you had the final push uh, up, uh, it was so far into the danger zone. So what I did is I sent the uh, fellow who had worked with me, who had studied at Yale University for his master's, and uh, also in Japan, uh, and to talk to the executives to say that the, there's danger, they should do something. So what happened was they were the same people who had invited me for fugu, the fish, for golf, had taken us to dinner, had me give big lectures. But deep down, they really didn't believe that a foreign professor could understand their markets. Their markets were, in quotes, different. Well, in fact, they weren't different. Uh, the ideas that I knew from the U.S. study were, were basically the same. There's a turn-of-the-month effect. There's a monthly th- effect. Uh, there's holidays. There's all that sort of stuff. And in, in the book I did called Calendar Anomalies and Arbitrage, I have all the papers from Japan, and I do the U.S. case uh, in Chapter 1, all the U.S. anomalies, which I use in trading a lot. So what I try to do with the books is everything in paperback so people can use the books. I don't care about the money. I just want people to use the stuff. And I use it myself, so that's, that's the thing. So anyway, Yamishi know, wouldn't, wouldn't listen to Ishii. And, uh, and, and so forth, and told him, well, we like Professor Zimba, but can he really understand our markets? Well, in fact, they made a huge mistake because five years later, uh, Yamishi was bankrupt, the entire firm. And, and a few years later after that, it ceased to exist. So that was uh, an incredible call, but you know they didn't, they didn't listen so anyway that's discussed a lot in this uh, new book on stock market crashes okay well you've mentioned um, a few things which I'd like to dig into a little further uh, I guess one of those being calendar anomalies so you know when you talk about calendar anomalies and I know this takes up a, a large chunk of your trading um, what are you actually referring to when you talk about a calendar anomaly? Like, what exactly is that? Let me give you an example from Japan. In the United States, we found that uh, two things. If you take the 70-year period, 70 years from around 1920, uh, to about uh, 2000, somewhere around there, you find that in the month, single month of January, the lowest decile stocks beat the highest decile stocks by 10.3% on average, year by year. And if you plot a graph, year by year, you find that almost every year, the small steps outperform and if they don't outperform, it's the underperform by just a little bit, et cetera. So the question is, how can you bet on this? So uh, in 87, I did a paper 
it's reprinted in this calendar now in this book, where, where you bet on that. And the idea was you go long a stock market index future at the time called the value line, which was equally weighted. And then you short the S&P 500, which is value-weighted at large cap. And you do this from about the period January 15th to about, the, uh, I'm sorry, December 15th to about January 15th. Okay, so the effect was actually in January, but it's anticipated in the futures market earlier. Okay, so, uh, so, so that I played, and I did that for many years, and I did it for 14 years, and I was managed to win each year. But it changes a little bit each year. And you got to have confidence in it that's actually going to work. It's like a horse race, whereas I learned my trading from. And the thing is, the only difference is you can stop the horse race. So if you're ahead, you just say, I'm getting out, stop the race, I'm out, etc. So you can, you can do that. So that, that was fine. That, that was a good one. Now in Japan, we go back to Japan. In Japan... Uh, I, I did the turn of the month effect. Now, in the U.S., you had the following results. Uh, if you take the minus one day, that's the last trading day of the previous month, and the next four trading days of the next month, that is, on average, was getting about two-thirds of the gains of the whole month. And the rest of the gains were in the second week. And the third and fourth weeks are essentially giving you nothing. Okay, so you have minus one to plus four. So I go to Japan, and it's a society that is supposedly male-dominated. So the, the salary man goes off to work, etc. The wife cooks and, and so forth and so forth. She's not allowed to go to dinner when the, the, uh, the husband has guests, etc. However, one thing was interesting. The women have the unimportant jobs of deciding where the children go to school, where the money is invested, where they live, what kind of car they have, and things of this sort. And the men have the extremely important job of deciding what kind of sandwich they take to work. So once I discovered that the women control the money, then I said, well, when do the women get the money? It turns out they get it on the minus five day. And guess what? The brokerage firms know this. So they are sending people on the minus five day, knocking on the door because the wife is there during the day. The salary man's working. He's already uh, given his check to the wife, and then she invests the money. So then the stock market turn of the month effect is minus five to plus two, which is interesting. So you get the effect of, of behavior. So behavior is, is, is very important. So there's economics and there's behavior and there's flows of money, what I'll call institutional practices, etc. So that was interesting. So the women uh, control the money. So that, that's clear, even more so than, than in lots of other countries. Uh, so it's it, so forth. So it's very interesting. Japan has a lot of different... Uh, characteristics that are different than uh, Western society. Uh, but very nice. We had a lovely time, the three of us there. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a nice time in our life. We really enjoyed it. And I wound up doing uh, three books, uh, of which you probably can 
can buy them on Amazon for three bucks if you want. One's called uh, Invest Japan, which I thought was a good one, and one's called Power Japan, and uh, and one was a more academic kind of a book of collective works. So that was that was a, a turning point for me. I enjoyed. It. I learned, learned a lot. And if I just say one one thing, Aaron, one thing I did, which was funny in the anomalies, there was a guy called Mr. Okada who didn't speak English. And I didn't speak Japanese. I'm not good at languages. And we would sit facing each other with a translator, and we would talk for hours. And he would talk about the Japanese market. I would talk about the U.S. market. And we, we learned from each other. And uh, it, was, it was very good to do that. And then when I was doing the books, I, you know, I could relate to, the, to that. The books are basically done after the, the stay. I stayed uh, with the family for one year. And then I consulted on a factor model of how to predict the uh, best stocks to the worst in the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Basically, the way the model works is is every month you get new data, and then you get things like earnings surprise, uh, P.E. ratio, price to book, uh, size of the stock, things of that sort. So I have 30 of these. And, and, and then basically you make the model and then once a year we update it and so forth. And what it does is it picks you the very best stocks each month and then you rotate out of them the next month. So I can have a portfolio of the best 50, the best 100, et cetera. And it, it, it did work. And what, what happened was I published the book. And, uh, you know, we don't get much as authors from the book. We get a little pleasure out of it. Uh, and a, a hedge fund called Buchanan in London bought a copy of the book out of the, out of the bookstore in London. And they discovered that I had a better model in the book than they were using. So I did consult with them for a few years after that, which was good because they used the, the model in a period when the Japanese market was falling versus uh, estimated when it was going up. It just had minus signs in the coefficients. Yeah, I would like to speak with you about some of the people who you have consulted with because I know you've certainly worked with some really big names. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. I just want to go back to that first example you gave when talking about uh, the first example of stocks in January. Now, you said that you go long the, well, you're looking for the lowest decile and the highest, but how are you defining the lowest and the highest? Like Lowest decile are the small stockets, universal widgets, uh, such and such, and the highest decile are Microsoft, Apple Computer, these sort of things. So you're looking at market cap? Market cap, exactly. Market cap. We, we know at the moment, you know, uh, App, Apple is extremely high market cap, and Microsoft's had a very good year, a resurgence under the new president, uh, and so forth. Now, you can't actually get the lowest decile. It's not traded as a as thing. So the value line was equally weighted, which, mean, which meant that Universal Widgets and Microsoft count the same. Now, so, so if they all count the same, then you have an emphasis toward the small stocks. Now, the reason that a monkey can beat the market by throwing darts at, at the newspaper is that it spreads it around and it gets more small caps, which on average, uh, if you hold them, uh, do better. Okay. They're a little bit more risky. But but in, but they they generally have higher higher returns in in terms of that. So that's one effect that's strong. Now another effect that's strong is presidential elections. Hold on, just just before we move on to that, let me just ask you another question around this. So uh, this particular trade of these stocks in January, you know, the lowest decile outperforming the yeah, the highest decile. Buy the stock. Yeah, no, you I understand that. I understand that, but. That's kind of the the premise or the the theory for the the strategy. So you're actually entering into a position in December and exiting in January. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, you do. Now the only thing, Aaron, that's very interesting is that in the beginning we did this in 1983, four, five, six, seven, when we did the first paper, and then then later I did other papers. And they reprinted them all in this calendar anomalies book. But it moved because as traders and people look at this, uh, first of all, when you study anomalies, it's a very hard sell. Very few people are willing to do it or, or interested as well. The people who've made a lot of money trading often do this. Uh, and it's, it, they do sort of work, but you have to sort of believe in it uh, in, in terms of thing. Now, over time, the market changed a bit, and if you look at, and I have year by years in the in the book Calendar Anomalies, uh, every every year is, is, is shown there. What happened was it moved in such a way that it got anticipated more and more. So nowadays, the entire January effect occurs in the month of December, 
it's, it's not even in January anymore because it's moved forward. People anticipate that it's going to happen. Uh, so it's moved there. So if you do the trade these days, you do it somewhere around the middle of uh, December and you're basically out at the end of December. So then you're finished. And uh, what's happened historically with me is I won the first 14 times uh, and uh, then I taught it to Morgan Stanley, uh, hoping to get consulting in New York. And it was a nice visit. I was paid well. It was a lot of fun. But the thing is, they had a lot more money than me. Morgan Stanley's a big outfit. And there was a, a fellow who had just joined, and he brought in seven professors to give strategy ideas. I, I was one of them. So we did that. So I realized that uh, the jig was up. I'm not going to be able to compete with these guys. They have more money, and there's more of them as well. But there was another thing. The volume was drying up. I was, as a professor part-time, I was 7% of the value line, which is really a lot to have. So then I stopped doing it for a bunch of years. And then Blair Hull, who you, you mentioned, uh, gave me a consulting contract, and I studied anomalies in the U.S. With, uh, I have, I have a, a, a fellow who helps me, uh, Constantine. And so Constantine helped with the calculations, and I was doing calculations. And we've done some papers together. So, so I th th basically re-looked at all the different anomalies. So then I found that the Russell small cap had taken over for the value line, but it's valuated. And because it's valuated, uh, the um, bigger stocks push it up. So it's essentially the fourth decile, not the first. But it did uh, work pretty well in the simulations in the years I didn't do it. And then I started doing it with real money, and I did it six years, and I did win each year. And then I was 20 for 20. Uh, and um, you're in Australia, by the way. I'm, I'm a student of undefeated horses. There's a horse in Australia called Black Caviar with 25 races, won them all. Uh, and we had a, a, a great female in, in the U.S. called Zenyatta. She was 19 for 19 but lost number 20. So anyway, I'm going for 21. And what happened was uh, Yellen, who was the head of the Fed, uh, uh, she is, of course, instrumental in deciding the interest rates. They, they raised interest rates by a quarter point, which was not much in December 2015. But in December 2015, there was a lot of threat of many more increases, which did not occur. But that messed up the, uh, the trade. So basically, uh, we lost. You know, it just didn't work. So anyway, I, uh, you know, it's a little sad to lose, but, you know, not everything is perfect. And the other thing that, that's important is you cannot expect everything to be perfect. One of my good friends is a, is a racing expert called uh, Steve Roman, and he's a tremendous expert what's called dosage, which is the breeding of a horse. Can they win the races like the Kentucky Derby? And for a period from 1929 to the 90s, every single year, 
a horse that had too much speed and not enough stamina could not win the race. Uh, and the, the, there's a score, and if you were uh, above four, the, the higher the number is, the more it's speed-oriented. And that's based on the parents. So what happened was Steve got a lot of bad publicity because people felt that this was infallible. And if he ever misses one, you know, it's, it's terrible. But the thing is, it's not terrible. I mean, if you get 9 out of 10, that's pretty good. You know, if you get uh, 9 out of 10 in baseball, you're the greatest hitter in the, in the history of the world. You know, 3 out of 10 is pretty good. So, so in any event, we have the same thing with anomalies. We win most of the time, but not quite all of the time. And the other thing is that if it doesn't quite materialize when it's supposed to, like many of the effects are that the small caps have bigger effects, they're longer, and they often move on the minus three day, the three days before the event. So if it does not occur, then there's trouble and the market often falls. So you get a sort of a signal in there that there's trouble in the market as well. So for me, you know, I do the turn of the month, turn of the year, uh, little stuff on holidays, presidential election effects, uh, and so forth. And in, in the fund, which you mentioned, I do mispriced anomalies uh, and very similar biases to horse racing extremely similar and and it's helpful in my thinking because I do both uh, and uh, a mean reversion prices go up and down and so forth uh, huge mean reversion in NFL football uh, with prices going up and down just before we get into the the mean reversion stuff that that is something I would like to speak with you about just on the anomalies, uh, you mentioned a little earlier that you'd done some research with Blair Hull and some consulting with him. Yes. I'd just be interested to hear a little bit about how you actually conduct your research for finding these anomalies. Like, can you just walk us through that process and sort of keep in mind that if someone at home is listening to this and they are thinking that they might want to try and see if they can find some sort of anomaly which they can exploit... Well, first of all, uh, you're coming from Australia, and uh, you know we have the Australian stock market, we have the Canadian stock market, etc. Um, basically, what you t- what's the best is to postulate a theory of what you think will happen, and a lot of it has to do with how the money flows. What do institutions have to do? One of the reasons that the turn of month effect occurs is that at the beginning of the month, people are receiving money from their pay. So then they put it in the stock market, some of it. Uh, so, so it's around that period. So that, that, that sort of thing. So basically, you sort of look at the data and, and just see what actually happened. And I like to dance around the issue, sort of think about it, talk to people. What are people doing? What are they betting on? Etc. So then you get sort of an idea of that. And then, of course, there is literature. Uh, there's a standard literature in the United States of, of, uh, of January effect. There's, there's a couple of Januaries. There's, there's one that we mentioned of the small stocks outperforming. That's one thing. But there's a second one where the performance of January of all the stocks 
is a forecast as to what's going to happen the rest of the year. Uh, so you have the January forecast, and also you have the first five days of January forecast. So, so we have those. Uh, and that's called also in the trade January barometer uh, in terms of, of that. And the result basically is if January is very positive, the rest of the year is usually more positive. If January is negative, the rest of the year is, is up or down about 50-50. And if it's wrong, then if your signal is good, it'll be less wrong. And if your signal is negative January and it's wrong, it'll be more wrong, if you understand that in terms of things. I have in the calendar anomalies book graphs of this sort of stuff. From a few of the things uh, I've read, which you've published and written about, and just from listening to you speak, it sounds as though you like to look at how things perform. So you're, you're looking at things from when a signal occurs and then a number of days forward. Is that something you look at a lot? Um, and not so much in terms of like trying to hit a price target as such. It's more about where does the market go in days after this event? Aaron, I think you're on the right track there. It's not exactly a price target. It's where is it trying to go? And what's really good in trading is if you can be ahead of the game. So if you think it's going to go up, then you go more long. If you think it's going to go down, you hedge or go short. Uh, so try to get your thinking about that. And, and the other thing that's very important is corrective action and not overbetting. So if you're wrong, how fast can you correct it? Uh, so forth. So in terms of what I do in trading, uh, you know, constantly tinkering, you know, it's moving a little, et cetera, et cetera. And it requires more work, but it does seem to work. Uh, in terms of, of, of doing it. Okay. And one of the things you said earlier, and I think your daughter, Rachel, may have actually said something along the same lines. I know she's uh, very involved with, uh, I think it's the fund. Um, you said something along the lines, and so did she, anomalies are poorly understood and not used much. I mean, why is that the case and how are they poorly understood? If you take 100 people doing the stock market, there's only three who actually use anomalies, or very few. I think most people, especially those who go through MBA programs, even at the very best schools, are taught that the market is essentially an efficient market, you can't beat the market, and, 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 and so forth. And the journals are controlled by people who live in a world where they believe that uh, you can't beat the market. And, and uh, it's unfortunate because over time they've had poor performance, but the thing is they seem to have more of the money. They've accumulated more, more of the money, and they, uh, they do. So, so the, the vast majority of the people actually don't do anomalies. Uh, some people think they don't exist. Uh, I was at Princeton University recently, and the king of anomalies not existing is Bertrand Macchiol. He's made a fortune over a book uh, that he's done on random walk down Wall Street. It's very good, 
but it's a certain extreme uh, point of view. And uh, I was pleased that I'm very aggressive in the question period, and I had said a bunch of things, and he he had done racing things, so he knew me. Uh, so he came up and bought me lunch, which which I thought was nice. So he, he doesn't do the things that I do, but he at least appreciates it, you know, and believes that, that we, can, we can, in fact, do it. Uh, and there, there's a lot of different camps in the stock market, different views that people have, etc. I try to write that up. To, I, one of the books is called Investing in the Modern Age, and that one, we, we talk about the what I call the five camps, there's efficient markets, there's risk premium. Efficient markets is the prices are correct except for transactions cost. Uh, risk premium is you can make more money, but only if you take more risk. Then there's a, there's a, ca- a category, uh, efficient markets. Uh, uh, efficient markets are hogwash, uh, and that's Warren Buffett's view that he'd like to endow chairs in efficient efficient markets at all the top universities so he can beat them all, uh, et cetera. And then there's the Paul Samuelson idea. Well, there are great traders out there, but it's hard to find them. For every uh, 20 traders that you find that are there, only one's good. And, And the last category are the people like myself who do research look at things, postulate theories, do statistical tests of that, of that sort. Now, I cut you off earlier when you were starting to talk about uh, your mean reversion trading. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, uh, I know it's something you compare a lot to betting on the NFL. I mean, would you mind expanding on that type of thing? Yeah, actually, if anyone's interested, there's uh – Three years of the NFL in, in the book, Investing in the Modern Age, which is paperback. It's not expensive. And I do three years of it. And there's games in there uh, that have the following characteristic. In the last three or four minutes, there's four lead changes. So they go up and down the field. And the prices are going up and down like a yo-yo. And, and so the way you do that, is you have to have an account like Betfair in London or some of the, something like that, where you can go long and short. Um, and then you watch it on TV and see it moves with the, with the, with the team's play. Uh, so there's one famous game I, I called the Game for the Ages, and that was uh, San Francisco 49ers playing New Orleans with the Drew Brees, the quarterback. And they were up and down the field four times in the last three minutes. Prices are so forth. Now, the stock market is not as, as, as violent with that. Now, my favorite team, is, I have two favorite teams in football. I have the uh, uh, Seattle team, which is close to where I live in Vancouver, and, and then New England, which is where I, I grew up. Now, New England very often starts the game slow. So they're very often behind but they're a very good team. They, they very often are behind the first quarter, maybe the first half. But by the third quarter, they start rolling. And, and usually, the, you know, they win. They, they've got a phenomenal record. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's just the way they do. So with them, uh, you can do the strategies where 
you try to do a, an A, B trade. This, this is like what Thorpe does a lot of this. This is sort of his stuff, which is you want to bet on A with certain odds. And then you want to get a bet on B at really good odds in such a way that A times B is greater than, than 1. And that's, that gives you an arbitrage. You can't, in other words, you can't lose. It's a risk arbitrage because, because you, you put on A, you might not find B. Uh, as well. So uh, Thorpe and I did one on Nikai Puts. Uh, basically, I was the junior player, so I had to do most of the work uh, at that time. And uh, he was the senior player, and we had another fellow, uh, Shaw from Gordon Capital in Toronto, uh, who did this. And we, we had a good experience of looking at these Nikai Puts that were uh, basically trading for too high a price. Uh, if you price them out with block shoals or something of that sort model, uh, they're, they're worth, uh, they were, they cost a lot more. So, so we, we did that as well. It works, works out okay. What you just described there, is that more of a spread trade than a mean reversion trade though? Well, spread is usually A minus B. Uh, and, and, uh, in mean reversion, you can go long something that's behind. So it's just an A kind of thing, just one part. So, I mean, there's a bit to what you're saying, of course, but I think the, the major idea is that the spread is like March versus June. Okay. That's a spread or small caps versus large caps. That's a spread. Uh, and the uh, mean reversion the, is, is more like, well, the stock market is going down a lot, so I'll assume that it's going to bounce and go higher. But I just do one thing. I just go long with the thing. So it's a little bit different. with its, it's one thing versus two things, I think. Okay. And what sort of mean reversion strategies are you using today, like in the Alpha Z fund? I mean, are these based on anomalies or are these a, a sort of a different category of, of trades? No, I, I think it's based on the way the prices are in relation to historical. So if, if, if you think you're in a trading range uh, and it's not moving much, then as you get to the bottom part of the range, you could buy because of the top part of the range you sell. Okay. So that, that's a standard uh, thing you can do. Uh, it's not the most powerful uh, technique, but it's useful on occasion. Usually what happens is you do it three or four times, and then the fifth time it goes one of the directions. So you have to account for that and, and make sure that in total you're, you're ahead. Now, William, I want to ask you, I mean, I kind of have to ask you uh, a little bit about position sizing. You know, you and Edward Thorpe and uh, one other gentleman uh, all co-authored a book on the Kelly Criterion. So, how do you think about position sizing with your trades? Uh, Are you using Kelly Criterion? Are you using a fraction of it? I mean, how do you think about position sizing? Yeah, I mean, that's, this is a super important point. Now, when you get into trades, the easiest thing is entering. The hardest thing is exiting, how to get out. If you're very careful, you sort of have a plan for getting out. 
which you may or may not actually uh, execute. Now, in terms of size, it's all related to the volatility. So it's VIX-related uh, in, in terms of that. Now, full Kelly has a lot of beautiful property. The long-run growth is the highest almost surely over a long period. Uh, you're ahead in the first draw on average. You're ahead after so many. But you have one problem. The Aeropratt Risk Aversion Index is minus the second derivative over the first derivative. That's essentially zero for log, which means that it's a very risky utility function with violent swings. So that's why often people will use fractional Kelly somewhere around a half. Half is the utility function minus one over W. Okay. So that so that's there. Now, with regard to the Kelly, you can have a hard and fast rule and can do calculations on the computer of how much to bet on different things. It's basically a nonlinear programming problem. It's not a one-dimensional problem. One dimension is the edge over the odds. But in multiple dimensions, you have to solve a nonlinear program. Uh, and But you can the, judge the fraction that seems to work for you. Uh, we have a simulation paper comparing them. It's reprinted in this book, Great Investment Ideas, uh, which I love. It's got a lot of nice papers. It's lovely. Uh, so it's, it's reprinted in there. And what we did is we looked at uh, quarter Kelly, eighth and three quarters and, and so forth, all, all these uh, numbers and did compare, you know, how it uh, evolves over time. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's good. A very typical good choice is half Kelly. It, it's, 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 it has a fairly good uh, characteristic. Full Kelly is useful for cases like this. Horse racing, when you're making a lot of bets similar over time, essentially an infinite sequence of similar bets. Uh, those high-frequency traders who are doing long trades of eight seconds, like Renaissance Medallion, they, they are, are good for the, for the Kelly. So that, that's the main case when you do. In, in horse racing, we use full Kelly because you're making a sequence of bets. They're all kind of similar. That's the idea. If you want a large sequence of bets and they're kind of similar, then it's pretty good. It generally, will, it's not guaranteed to give you the exact maximum, but uh, usually it does most of the time. And that's the crux of... Uh, the letters that Paul Samuelson wrote to me, which uh, I was very flattered. He's the top economist of the last century. Uh, and he took an interest in that. He was always very friendly to me. Uh, absolutely brilliant guy. And uh, the most brilliant person I believe I ever had dealings with is Kenneth Arrow, who also died. He died uh, this year. And they were both around 95. They're both uh, absolute giants. Uh, and uh, I was pleased to, to know both them personally, which was great, uh, and so forth. And we've lived in a period, those of us who are a little bit older, 
of, of actually knowing a lot of these people who, you know, contributed to the field. So. I, I'm not, I can't remember if your name was in it, but I know Ed Thorpe and um, uh, Claude Shannon and a few of those other guys from around that kind of, from that era. Uh, there's a really good book, Fortune's Formula. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with it, and it speaks about Kelly. I did talk to him. He, we talked on the phone three times. He's a very good writer. It's a very good book, but he doesn't understand that when you have more than one asset, you have to solve the nonlinear program to get the weights, the proper weights. Uh, but other than that, he did a very nice job, et cetera. Now, because of that book, uh, Motley Fool and uh, Morning, his Morning Star, they give Kelly weights, but they're they're incorrect. They 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 say one stock and tell you how much weight to give into it, and they give you another stock how much weight, but you can't actually do them one by one. You have to do it together. Uh, so, but other than that, it's it's a wonderful story, and he did a good job. He's a very good writer, and he did talk to uh, you know a lot of the major players in in this in the subject. And uh, I, three times he called me up. We talked a bit. That's William Poundstone you're referring to, right? Yes, yes, and it's uh, it's another cheap paperback. What we try to do is f- for the people, uh, you know like to read uh my wife is a very good reader is is have the books paperback and they're not expensive so people can uh can get them that's what i try to do with all all the books for me now so is the cali criterion is that something you use to determine your position sizing today like that's something you're actually implementing yeah but i but i'm Aaron, but i'm doing it sort of in my head see i've been doing this for many years. I'm sort of approximating it, how I feel it's going, because there's a lot of things going on. Uh, one example that uh, that Thorpe uh, found was there's a guy called Monish Perbeck, and, and he had the following uh, bet uh, with um, a small probability you lose all the money with a high probability you double the money. And then with a small, the medium probability, you break, more or less break even. So the question is, what's the optimal Kelly bet? Now, when you do the calculation, it's around 98% of your fortune. Because the way that Kelly works is, the more attractive the bet is, the more you bet. So you really pound it hard if it's good. Now the trouble with that is if you if you're wrong, you lose a lot. So that's why it's so violent if you do the path. That's why a lot of people like doing half Kelly. And what's half Kelly is 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 half of the full Kelly and then the rest is cash. So it's a toned down version. But you don't get the the great long run growth, but you get a lot more security. And McLean and I have worked a lot on that of these trade-offs between uh, uh, growth and security. It's just like mean variance, uh, Harry Markowitz's trade-offs in mean variance analysis. Well, William, just for this last part, I'd like to speak with you a little bit about uh, about your experiences in horse racing. I think that'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about. Um, you were, like, 
just so I get the order right, you were into horse racing prior to trading, weren't you? Like that's where you started out. Yes. I, I grew up near a Saratoga racetrack, which is one of the major it's it's a, a track of extreme tradition. Uh and uh it was near where I grew up in, in uh, it's upstate New York. I grew up in the Berkshires section of uh, Massachusetts. And I went and I started studying. And actually, I started trying to do uh, picking the best horse. But then I ran into Mark Rubenstein, who, you know, he's portfolio insurance fame. Uh, and who I knew, and uh, we started working together, and he pushed me in the direction of looking at it like a stock market. So then, and what happened was we worked together a little bit. He did co-author one of our papers, uh, but Don Hosh and I basically did most of it, and and he went on to do other things uh, as well. Very smart guy, uh, and 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 so forth. Um, but in any event, the idea that we did in the Beat the Racetrack book, these, some of the books are sort of out of print, but I keep redoing parts of them, like my new book, Adventures. I have a picture book with uh, travel all around the world, and the publisher let me have color pictures of everything. And then I talk about all the consulting and working with a variety of uh, very interesting people over over time. Uh, but anyway, the idea of the place it show system is you get probabilities from the win market, and those are correct, except they're a little bit biased. So you're correct for the bias. And then you use those probabilities for a more complex market, place and show. Uh, so, so you do that. And then we've expanded that to all the other kind of bets. So you, you basically price the bets. And I, I have a book on that, but I haven't finished it. I've been doing it. It's hard to finish all the books <laughs> as, as it is. I got uh, two in print uh, uh, just recently, the Crashes book, which I love it. It's got great stuff. And uh, this picture book, which is I love it even more because it's got traveling in Afghanistan and uh, – uh, uh, Petra and uh, Egypt and all sorts of places, which we were able to do as professors. It was it was nice, uh, you know. It w- it was good, and, and so so that one that was called Adventures of a Modern Renaissance Academic in uh, Investing and Gambling. That's the official title, and the crash is one I did with two other fellows. They helped me. One is in Reims, uh, France. R e i m s which is in the Champagne District with Sebastian, Leo. And the other one is uh, Mikhail. And Mikhail's in Moscow. And I ran into Mikhail when I was giving Kelly lectures, actually, at the University of Manchester in England. He's very smart. And what Mikhail and I were working on was, you think you have a bubble. Can you get out of the bubble at a good price and a good time? So we applied this to Apple Computer, to uh, golf courses in uh, uh, Japan. By the way, I once gave a talk in your lovely Australia, and they said, why are you interested in golf courses? And I said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a small market, but it's uh, bigger than the Australian stock market. <laughs> 
So, you know, that, that kind of calmed them down, uh, et cetera. But anyway, the, the golf courses were incredible in Japan. It was a bigger crash than the, even the stock market. And then we did crash of 29, crash of, uh, of uh, 87 and this sort of thing. And, uh, it's, it's quite nice. The model sort of ascends as the, as the bubble starts forming and then it pops off and then it comes down. So we did that. And the other thing we do in the book that's interesting is how many crashes are there and how many crashes do people expect? And it turns out they expect a lot more than actually occur. Uh, a lot of brokerage firms now are giving people trouble by saying if you have a position and if it drops 20% tomorrow, uh, you'd be in trouble so you can't have so many positions or 30%. And it turns out in the history of the United States, there's only one day where it fell 20, over 20%. And there's only three days where it fell 10% or more, only three in, in 117 years. Uh, so the, the public expects more crashes than actually occur. That's the thing. So anyway, I, I'm very happy with those two, two, uh, two things. I'm glad to be done on them. And then, for me, I, I learn a lot from the books. They just go on to the next project. And while we're talking about horse racing, uh, with him, you've, of course, worked with one of the great names in horse racing, Bill Banter. Uh, how did you come to meet Bill, and what was that experience like? First of all, the teams that are professional teams, and I'm actually working now to develop our own uh, with, a, with a group of people, and it's hard. You know, and it's 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 a lot of, it's a lot of work, even with a lot of human capital. Now, Benta came in. He's a former blackjack player. Many many successful people in hedge funds and so forth came from gambling backgrounds. So for me, I did horse racing, uh, Thorpe and uh, Blair Hall and uh, McPike, who's a guy I worked with in Nassau and uh, Benta. They all came from blackjack uh, uh, training. Uh, and so did Bill Gross, the famous uh, bond trader. What it does is it teaches you the risks better and taking risks and dealing with them, etc. Because the risk is uh, super, super important. Now, Benta started out and he, he had trouble for a couple of years. He did talk to us a bunch on the phone and we did. And... Uh, uh, he had new ideas that he did, and he worked hard at it, and it's paid off. He's a, a very wealthy man. And uh, I didn't have a lot of contact recently. His um, only paper that he really published, we put in our book called uh, um, uh, Efficiency of Racetrack Betting Markets, and it became a sort of a cult item. Uh, and uh, actually... Some of the copies were selling for twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, I didn't sell them for twenty thousand. I sold one to somebody in Sydney for fourteen hundred, which is the highest I got. But but anyway. But then, as an academic, we like to have it used by people. So we did a second edition, and it's seventy dollars or something. Uh, it's from World Scientific as well. So so in any event. Uh, Benter did a paper in there, and he he discovered certain things and got it to work. Uh, recently, he got me recommended me to be in a court case, so I'm uh, representing a fellow 
who paid for a, a good model and it was basically stolen by somebody else. And the somebody else claims that it's a different model, but we show that it's actually the same. Uh, so that's still continuing. And these court cases seem to last forever. Uh, it's been going for about four years. Uh, so, uh, so I'm, I'm doing that as a witness and that was mentor was, uh, involved with that. And he, of course, made major contributions. He showed that you could take a sport like horse racing where it's tough and come from a different country and make it successful. So he did that. At the moment, there's about eight or 10 teams around the world. The most uh, uh, important and successful one is actually in, in your Australia, in uh, Sydney. Who's that? That's uh, Jelko. Uh, okay. He, uh, he's a well-known guy. Uh, there are two of them. There's the fellow who wrote the programs. His name is Walsh. And uh, apparently there's a huge museum that they built in Tasmania. That's right, yeah. Uh, uh, from this. And uh, he was very important in writing the programs. And I, I have met with him. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of betting in Australia. <laughs> very, very serious bettors. Uh, and, 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 and rather good at it. So, uh, you know, he's a top team. Uh, and they bet a lot of money and they win this consistently and they're all over the world. Do you think it's easier to make money in things such as horse racing or NFL compared to financial markets? The stock markets are easier, definitely. How come? Well, the transactions costs are, are lowest. You know, you, you, you trade a futures contract and, and you do it and you, you collect the $100,000 worth of money and, and it costs you $10 to make the transaction. In the horse racing, you have to pay like 10 or 15%, even with the rebate. We have rebate now where you get some of the money back. So instead of having like a 15% commission uh, transaction cost, it's more like 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, so it's lower, but it's still, it's, it's tougher. So these teams to be successful usually require about a million dollars worth of uh, research and uh, a couple of years or, or longer to get going. So it's, it's, it's a, a major impact and you need a lot of different things. And there's also competition because the different teams are competing against each other, making bets at the last minute. The racing is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and, and the teams have been able to be successful in the win, but uh, it, it's work. It's, it, it's, it's harder, certainly harder. Why are you talking about these, these people in, in, in terms of teams? Like, is it not possible for someone to do this as an individual? Does that make it even more difficult? It's pretty hard as an individual because there's a lot of aspects. You have the computer program. You have the execution. You have collection of the data. You have watching the horses. There's lots of different features. Now, in Hong Kong, they have mostly Australian geldings. So it's a kind of a homogeneous group of the same horses running all the time. And the Hong Kong Jack Club is very sophisticated and keeps a lot of records and a lot of information. 
Now, if you go to other places, like, for example, the United States, you have a race, say, at Belmont. It's a mile race. So ho- horse number one is running six furlong races. He's now doing one mile. Horse number two is shipped from France and has never run on, let's say it's a grass race, never run on the grass. Horse number three is shipping from California and, and so forth, you know. So they're coming from different places and different things, and it's very hard to evaluate all of them. Like this year in the, in the United States, in the Triple Crown races, the three-year-olds, there's about eight horses that were made as uh, B-minus quality. Nobody's an A or nobody's an A-plus. Um, they're just, uh, you know, any of the eight could win any, any given race. And we saw that this week. We had a race called the Jim Dandy, and we had a race called the uh, Haskell. And uh, horses that were not expected to win did win. So it's 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 tricky. It's 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 harder. It's certainly harder. It has a lot of charm to it, though, and and there is a lot of uh, computerized work. We have programs for all the bets, so we we have that, and other people have them as well. Uh, you know, to calculate the, the sizing, as you mentioned, Kelly. And then also uh, how to generate probabilities and things of that sort. One of the things that strikes me is why it could possibly be easier to make money in, in sports betting or betting on horse races or whatever it may be compared to financial markets is you know the exact kind of payout and exact risk going into you know any bet. Uh, and I think you kind of mentioned this actually when we first started speaking, you know, financial markets are continually moving, whereas a race has a yes. definitive start and finish point and you know the exact payout odds. Um, so I feel like the, the math for it would possibly be a bit easier to work out. But I mean, is there any merit to that? Well, yes. But so the way I'd sort of argue it, Aaron, is that in sports betting, you have a more sophisticated group of bettors. Like in the stock market, the vast majority are really not thinking about it, don't know much about it, and are just playing around. Okay. In sports betting, basically everybody who does it is pretty serious. Uh, so the quality of the competition is tougher in those, in, in those, in those things. So, so, but I mean, certain areas of the stock market, uh, there's a high level of expertise, like, uh, you know, different kinds of program trading or fast trading, this sort of thing. Uh, you mentioned other people like Blair Hall and these people. Some of them are doing, uh, very fast trading. Uh, uh, I did, uh, talk with Jim Simons, who was the, uh, the head of the Renaissance Medallion, which is the number one uh, hedge fund uh, ever. Phenomenal uh, record. Um, and uh, for them, a long trade was eight seconds, you know. So they're, you know, doing constantly fast trades. So, so that's where Kelly is actually very valuable to use in that, that situation. But the rank and file in the stock market is not as sophisticated as the sports bettors. At least my, at least, at least my opinion. No, 
somebody can argue against that, but that's that's what I that's what I think. <laughs> I mean, I was always at the kind of assumption that it was much the other way around because you know you hear about all these firms these days which are hiring PhDs and that sort of thing, and then I think about some of my mates who are betting on sports and just pretty much just throwing their money away. It's uh, it's kind of silly. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, in terms of that. See, for me, I got to be rated the number one futures trader in the U.S. And I am traveling around the world, giving lectures, giving trades on the phone. Uh, I'm, I'm not sitting in an office uh, 24 hours a day at a computer with a computerized model as people are. But the thing is, Aaron, I taught part-time at Oxford for nine years. Now... At, I was a fellow the first year, and then I taught after. The thing was that you had at Oxford is really smart kids. They're really smart. But they don't have much experience in in the know-how of, of the markets. Uh, so I like to think that they're so smart they can lose money intelligently. <laughs> uh, and... and uh, these, these firms are filled with these kinds of guys, and, and these are very high quality kids. They're not kids; they're you know master students, but they're they're very talented. And some of them, I'm sure, are great traders, but on average, maybe not so much. So, my experience is that people like to give the money to these big firms because it sounds like there's more sophisticated, but in fact. They have actually poorer records than even people like myself. But then I, I have to work harder at though. You know, I, I work pretty hard to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have for people who help me. It's not just me. So they help me, et cetera. But I, I can do it, et cetera. But the thing is I've actually written, written the books and studied them, you know, in terms of understanding things. Whereas a lot of the people are just, uh, you know, they get a, they've been indoctrinated that you can't beat the market or something like that, and you know, it it, it sort of hurts their uh, their their performance. So just because it's a big firm with a big name, don't necessarily think that they're going to have top people uh, running your portfolio. They're, they they may have top people running somebody's portfolio, but it may not be yours. <laughs> so you have to have to be careful about that yeah that's a fair point actually that's that's a good point yeah and not to not to mention you're also a smart guy yourself william <laughs> yeah, so, so anyway let's uh cut this off here i know you've got i know you've got to run in a minute absolute pleasure speaking with you thanks a lot for doing this yeah thank you very much nice to talk good luck with all your activities and uh uh so far so the only thing i'd recommend to people or they do is study and then start doing it, but with small amounts of money, very small. You can do trading with a very small amount of money and get your feet wet and sort of thinking about things and study the books. And I mean, I have the books and so forth. There's about six or seven for me. Uh, they'll be on Amazon or World Scientific Web, you know, all their paper and other people have things and find things that you like that are that are useful and, and try it and get your own thing and be very careful of not overbetting to, to always try to not overbet because it's very easy to get in the situation where 
you have done it, and all of a sudden the uh, the ratios change and, and you're over betting. Very good. Uh, thanks, uh, Aaron, for having me on. That sounds great. Now, William, just one last thing. You have a website as well. Um, you know, if anyone wants to find your books, you mentioned they're on Amazon, but yeah, also on your website. It's www.williamtzimba.com, uh, my name. And that lists uh, papers and books and uh, talks and things of that sort. And I do the horse racing, which I like a lot. And, uh, and then, um, the, you know, the, the stock market stuff and sports betting, et cetera. And I've been actually getting now into, uh, buying, uh, racehorses, which is part of it, which is another, another game that's very interesting. <laughs> well, we might have to save that conversation for another day, but William, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for doing this. Very good. Very good. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.